This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, which is co-hosted by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies here in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Duncan Macargo. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. And today I am joined by my old friend, a great expert on Malaysia, Bridget Welsh, who is an honorary research associate at the Asia Research Institute of the University of Nottingham, Malaysia campus. Bridget, welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. Great to be here, Duncan. So it's been a while since we had a chance to catch up on the twists and turns of Malaysian politics, which I once felt I understood, but am now rather at sea about. So perhaps we can talk about some of those things. And of course, for the benefit of some listeners who may not have followed Malaysia that closely. I mean, we always thought Malaysia was, was a very predictable story. Same group of parties were in power for 60 years, few ups and downs with the election result, but basically nothing really changed until 2018. So what happened in 2018? Can you refresh our, our memories on that, Bridget? Well, I think what happened is that we saw that after 61 years in power, that the BN or the Barisan National Coalition, which is dominated by mm. the Malay Party, UMNO, was kicked out of government. Right. And I think this is the first time you actually saw a change in power, change in government in the country's history. And a lot of these things happened not just at the time of the election, but had their roots before that. I mean, we've seen the growing of the opposition from really from the, the 1990s. <laughs> and a lot of pressures for reform. Mm -hmm. And among scholars, and there's been a lot of books, there's been about nine books now on this election. Right, yes. <laughs> and we see a whole different set of things of what people talk about, what happened. All right, so there's kind of agency explanations who took, put a emphasis on Mahathir, and then, you know, and how that he was effective in be, being able to split the incumbent party, Amno. And then there's others that talk about, you know, what's happened in terms of the fragmentation, of what's happened in society, the fragmentation of the Malay electorate, which has been the majority community, and that they became divided. And as a consequence of that, this allowed an opportunity for new political powers to, and parties to emerge. State nationalism in Borneo and the states of Sarawak and Sabah. We see also you know, the, the strengthening of the opposition and the rise of civil society. The opposition itself became much more of an umbrella movement. These are people who look at the sort of changes in society. And of course, Najib's 1MDB case, uh, the corruption case, these, uh, you know, all of these things are some of the different explanations that we see about why it happened. Um, you know, my personal view is that a lot of this has to do with how Malaysia society itself is changing, mm -hmm. that there was more risk-taking in voting. Uh, there's much more pluralistic identities. Uh, you know, you have no emergence of a middle class uh, who has different aspirations and were willing to take risks. The end result was that you saw what was people who interpreted as an embrace of democracy, uh, where you have a change in government. Uh, and we saw 22 months, 20 to 22 months, how you count it, of a, of a coalition government that came in, led by Mahathir, uh, but also representing more uh, uh, different aspects of Malaysian society that had been excluded previously, uh, particularly greater representation for ethnic minorities, uh, more liberal voices. Um, and this was seen as a kind of profound change with a lot of hope for many, many Malaysians. Um, and it was very difficult to overcome some of the obstacles to get into power. 
and the implication has been that this was going to bring about a new Malaysia, mm -hmm. but this didn't happen. And so we saw, you know, this coalition collapse in February of this year. Right. Yeah. This is the, the intriguing bit. So from the, from the sort of international media headline perspective, there were two sort of big takeaways from 2018. One was the collapse of the of UMNO, the old ruling party on the Barisan National Alliance. And the second one was the extraordinary return of Dr. Mahathir Mohamed, who had been Malaysia's prime minister before for a long time and is now in his 90s. And this guy, of course, a master political manipulator, manages to inveigle himself back into the prime minister's office. And I guess a lot of us assume at that point, okay, Mahathir has pulled off this masterstroke. He's you know, crossed over to the other side. He's embraced the opposition. He's kicked UMNO out. And now he's so wily, he'll stay in the prime minister's office until he's carried out in a wooden box. And yet somehow he seems to have made a hash of things. So why was it that Mahathir's supposedly oppositional progressive coalition, whatever exactly it was, unraveled at the end of February of this year? I think things were, were wrong from, in some ways, probably from the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that there was a lot of planning to put themselves in office, but there really wasn't much plan about what they were going to do when they were in office. And that became obvious. But you also had the legacy of the past. And that meant that there was a trust deficit among certain partners, especially between Anwar and Mahathir. Mm -hmm. And this meant that they began to undercut each other from the onset. And this was really quite challenging because there was constant politicking, uh, that there was a positioning vis-a-vis -vis each other that really kind of undercut and distracted attention from the issues of governing. I think also Mahathir himself, well, you know, he, the, the saying goes, a leopard can't change its spots. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, Mahathir, you know, he was a figure of the past that came at a time that was a very different time for Malaysia. Yes. His negativity, you know, he undercutting his own people, sticking to old ideas such as the national car, these really did not endear himself to a younger electorate that were mm. looking for a kind of different vision uh, for the country. And unfortunately, Mahathir seemed resistant to be willing to embrace new ideas. And importantly, for the core supporters who put him in place, he seemed to be unwilling to engage in substantive reforms, of which was promised by the opposition. So in a sense, there was a new mm. Malaysia mm. without the sense of, of actually substantively building it. But I think there were other things that were going on too, Duncan, which are, mm -hmm. I think people don't fail to really appreciate. And that this society is a very complex place. Yes. Uh, you know, people look at Malaysia, they think about predominantly about its ethnic divisions. Right. But the society is deeply politically polarized, not just over issues of race, but over questions of religion and over issues of reform. Mm -hmm. And this coalition had all these three components within it with differences. Everything was a constant compromise. There was no clear set of priorities. And, and in a sense, what happened is that Mahathir tried to engage or tried to win back his traditional base, which was the Malay electorate, mm -hmm. which weren't going to vote for him because they, he wasn't UMNO and he wasn't the Islamist party. Right? And at the opposition, in fact, actually, you know, who were had promised reforms who are now in government, they began what we see in coalition governments in Europe, a process of delegitimation of their political base. Mm -hmm. right? You know, when, when, when you have coalition mm -hmm. politics, this, this happens. 
Right. And, you know, we, we have the same sort of situation now about, you know, we can ask Malaysians are, uh, uh, they tend to focus on the, the explanation of what happened in February is they say it's all about the individuals. There's tremendous blame of Mahathir and mm -hmm. there's some blame mm -hmm. of Anwar. And others, scholars uh, such as James Tin, really talk about the kind of permeance of race politics and the Malay nationalism in this context. And I think, you know, there's the focus on the kind of deliverables in terms of this sense of whether or not the government delivered. But I think it's a combination of these things, as well as this inability to reach, to address the kind of differences that were in the polarized society itself. And yes, Mahathir is responsible, um, as is Anwar, and as are many of the actors, but also the, the opposition was able to capitalize on these underlying differences. And now what we see is a new government that is less polarized. They have more things in common with each other, and they're able to set a clearer set of priorities, which is a sense, back to what you were saying earlier, Duncan, kind of the old Malaysia. Mm -hmm. To me, of course, Mahathir resigned, didn't he? Which was obviously some kind of, of miscalculation. He assumed he was going to get himself into a stronger position by resigning, I guess, uh, and then ended up in a, in a weaker one. As somebody who studied monarchy, obviously, in neighboring Thailand, I was very intrigued to see uh, the king of Malaysia decide that he was going to exercise his constitutional right to decide who to invite to become the next prime minister, not just by um, talking to a couple of people, but by inviting in every single member of the parliament and asking them who it was they really supported. That seems a rather extraordinary procedure for a constitutional monarchy, doesn't it? Well, you know, it is, uh, Malaysia is a very extraordinary place. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, there is this sense of one of the things that happened is that there's, like the rest of the world, Malaysian politics has become a more uncertain place. Yes. And, that, and people who have powers in positions of uncertainty use them. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've seen the sultans and the king, but particularly the sultans initially, using their powers more effectively and more decisively in Malaysian politics. For example, in the 2009 breakup of the mm -hmm. uh, state government mm -hmm. in Perak, we saw the sultan playing a very pivotal role in making setting decisions. And of course, so it's not a surprise that when you have similar issues of division and uncertainty, mm -hmm. that the king uh, uses his power. And he did. And you know, it's interesting because he gave power to the group that represents traditional Malay institutions. And, and is advocating itself as a Malay nationalist alternative. And he mm. himself represents a Malay uh, nationalist and Malay institution. So in a sense, you know, it really wasn't necessarily about counting whether or not Muhyiddin had the majority in parliament, no. but rather what was his decision he felt was best for the institutions and stability of the country. Uh, and of course, this has you know, raised its own sets of issues within mm -hmm. the Malaysian context because of the polarization of the society. Uh, and, you know, as you said earlier, Mahathir made this possible because Mahathir resigned. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And ironically... He was a banker also, which was, yes. you know, was seen as very childish by many people. Right. And ironically, if we go back a couple of decades, it was Mahathir who, who had tried to trim the political powers of the, of the monarchy precisely to avoid these kinds of things. And then he ends up being sort of done in by <laughs> circumstances that he's largely created himself. So there's, a, there's a, a fascinating story, which is both a personal story and an institutional story about transformation and, and a very, very dynamic society. And that's what's so intriguing about this. One day, I guess someone will write this all up 
Well, I think what goes around comes around. And yes. I think what happened to Mahathir is he got, he got his comeuppance. Right. You know, when right. you reduce the power of the royalty, the royalty comes back. Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a very telling irony. So we end up with a, a new government and a new prime minister. So who is Muhyiddin Yassin? What does he represent? Are they actually just a front for UMNO and they're trying to put UMNO back into power? Or is it a bit more complicated than that? I think it's a bit more complicated. So Muhyiddin Yassin is an UMNO politician. Now, mm -hmm. He joined politics in 1971, mm. like 49 years ago. Uh, so he's in his 20s. Uh, right. he, he's now currently 73. He's played major political positions. Um, he was the chief minister of Johor, which is a major state uh, mm -hmm. in the South in 1986. Um, and he also has been uh, in multiple minister positions. And he became deputy prime minister under the Najib government, which came into power in 2009. And he was the deputy prime minister, which really served as the kind of, not only as a, as a deputy in terms of uh, holding ministerial portfolios, he also served as a kind of grassroots mobilizer for the party, mm -hmm. uh, which the deputy prime minister often did in Amno. Um, and he was that until 2015. Mm -hmm. And he resigned over the 1MDB scandal and then became part of uh, the opposition, which later formed and became part of the Pakistan Harapan or the coalition yes. of, uh, of hope of opposition. And that, that later came into power in 2018. He had been sacked from Amno. Mm. Uh, and, and what happened is that the differences within the coalition and over Anwar's leadership and over issues of reform and others, you know, came to a head, as we mentioned earlier in February. And Muidin, working with others, you know, became the leader of a new coalition. And this is called Perikata National yes. and the National Alliance. And it is, it is essentially a marriage of convenience, uh, you know, and Muidin was quite successful in so far in taking the party that Mahathir formed as the chairman and Muhyiddin was the president of away from right. Mahathir. Right. <laughs> and now, um, and bringing in many of the different people who jumped over politically, uh, and he had represents um, roughly, you know, around a third of the members in cabinet, uh, I mean, in, the, in his majority or, or his share of the majority in the system. And he formed an alliance with the Islamist party and with UMNO. And now, although UMNO technically, uh, in terms of numbers, has the most representatives, uh, Muhyiddin doesn't have much less mm -hmm. in the sense. And, and, you know, while he's an UMNO politician, technically he represents an alternative part. And this is something that I was talking about earlier, that we see much more fragmentation in the Malay electorate. You know, right. this sense that the Malays are all the same. No, there's much more pluralism, there's much right. more division, there's much more competition. So he is an UMNO politician in a different vehicle, using and allying himself with UMNO to stay in power. And in fact, what we're seeing is UMNO is playing a very important role in government, and it is in government, as is the Islamist party PAS, but it is not the UMNO of the past in the sense that it is the dominant player. Mm -hmm. And it is not the UMNO of the past in the sense that it is in full control. Uh, and I think that's why some people in UMNO would like to have an election uh, in order right. to be able to return them to that position of the past. Indeed. Um, Indeed. It's now a weaker UMNO, but an UMNO nevertheless that has managed in less than two years to come back into office and, and, and to hold key ministerial positions. 
Indeed. And I guess a question that many people will be will be wondering about is what's happened to Najib in all this? Is this new government in some way trying to get Najib off the hook so that he isn't going to have to face the music over 1MDB? Or is that a, just a, a conspiracy theory of the kind that you can find lots of floating around on the internet these days? Well, I think there's conspiracy theories everywhere as we've learned Indeed. during COVID-19. But yes. I, I would say that um, Najib Razak, who was the former prime minister, mm -hmm. as you discussed from 2009 till he, he was voted out of office in 2018, um, is still a prominent player in Malaysian politics. Right. Uh, we had a by-election over the weekend in mm -hmm. his constituency, which uh, there was no real candidates against him and since, and against his party. They were just independents running and without any party organization. But he, you know, they came away with a very strong majority. Um, is a result of the fact that PAS and UMNO voters stuck together. Yep. Many people uh, see that Najib is, is not only a major player, but he's trying to make a political company. Right. Now, the first verdict on his case is supposed to be held on July 28th. Yep. Uh, and it, it is, there are three major cases involving one MD, and this is the first of, of them. Uh, this has been a process that has been you know, very long, <laughs> delayed, pushed down the road, the expectation there will be some sort of decision. And no matter what the decision is, it will be appealed, mm. <laughs> you know, unless it's completely non not, not guilty. Right. And in that context, uh, so he will still may maintain himself as a prominent player in Malaysian politics. I think one of the things that's being decided is whether or not he will be part of UMNO's slate at the next election. And I think uh, there's a sense of wanting to not have him part of that, but there are others who, who still continue to see him as the kind of figure that, that, that brings out some of their party support. I think we're going to see not only about his case, but his political future are very much present. And there are views that if he, does, if he is significantly convicted, this will serve to undermine the Muyudin government because AMNO mm -hmm. or parts of AMNO will leave it. Right. Uh, and Amno itself is not, you know, there are divisions. Some would like Najib to stay and others would not. So we see he continues to be a major figure, mm -hmm. continues to haunt Malaysian's political process uh, right. in a very right. significant way. And I think it remains unclear whether or not he will be found guilty and whether what his political future will be uh, at this particular juncture. My sense is, however, is that this also serves to polarize the rest of the society, the people who voted against him. And, and there are two things that are happening here. Uh, one is that there is uh, anger. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so Najib's stepson recently was, there was a deal made on his case involving 1MDB, and that provoked a lot of anger. But it's also fueling a sense of cynicism. You know, yes. one of the challenges about 2018 was that there was tremendous hope. Right. It was a very emotional type of election. Yes. And the implications have been when two years later, after promising to, to bring about justice, that for many people that, 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 that has not yet been served. And for those who are Najib supporters, they think it is being served. So it is polarizing the society and it, and it is reinforcing the sense that people are not able to bring about the changes that they would like. Uh, and the system itself is holding on and protecting mm -hmm. its own. Yep. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it, it really does a disservice to Malaysia from the perspective of anti-corruption uh, and corruption issues in the country, uh, given the scope of the 1MDB crisis and the scandal. 
um, you know, it, uh, it involved billions of dollars. It's the largest kleptocracy case in the world. Right. Uh, you know, and, and we're talking, you know, an unprecedented amount of money in the context of Southeast Asia and Asian politics, Absolutely. and that's saying something. <laughs> so I think that uh, Najib, he has a future. And I think even the sense is the cynicism is that even if he gets convicted, some sort of deal will be made that he may mm -hmm. receive a pardon. Uh, so, you know, this sense of lack of closure on this case has really permeated large, large parts of Malaysian society. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you about yet another larger-than-life character, because we have quite a few of them uh, around in Malaysian politics, don't we? And, and you and I have both come across Anwar Ibrahim a number of times. I heard him speak most recently in New York last year. Many people thought that you know, this was the return of the dream team from the 90s. Mahathir and Anwar got back together and that was the secret of the success of the opposition in, in winning that election. But lo and behold, before very long, they were not exactly uh, getting along anymore. And the original idea that Mahathir was just going to be in office for a couple of years and then he was going to gracefully step aside for his old protege. Finally, uh, you know, the crown prince would, would ascend to the throne and get his turn to be prime minister. Doesn't seem to have worked out like that. What's happened to, to poor old Anwar, who's in many ways the most appealing of the various uh, troublesome characters in, in Malaysian politics of recent decades, who's had been rather hard done by? What happened to his chances of becoming prime minister? Well, Anwar has made a lot of sacrifices for the country and for the issues of yes. reform. But I think his views and perceptions outside are somewhat different than they are inside. Indeed. And I think this is true uh, for uh, a lot of politicians. Today, he was finally, after uh, over a month of negotiation, um, which has been quite played out in the public and done a tremendous, I would say, um, harm to Pakistan Harapan supporters because they've been pitted against each other. The opposition has now announced Anwar Ibrahim as their designated PM candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. Now, but, uh, you know, that it has had to come from first for suggesting Mahathir, then suggesting the, the chief minister of Sabah, Shafi Abdal, and now Ma Anwar indicates some of the divisions that exist within right. the, in the opposition. Anwar Ibrahim now is the longest, one of the longest serving opposition figures in, in Southeast Asia. Um, and I think his prospects of winning in an election, I think have been very badly damaged. Yes. As a result of how um, he's handled himself in this period of time in the the battle um, that that is that has happened in the course of the struggle over within within Pakistan Harapan itself. Anwar did not have the support of the numbers of many uh, parliamentarians that moved to him. Mm -hmm. uh, his own party was split and informed the most people who left. Uh, and so there's questions yep. about how yeah. he managed his own party. He doesn't have his numbers in terms of popularity among the Malay electorate are extremely mm -hmm. low. And it's not necessarily clear exactly what Mahathir, you know, how Mahathir is going to react to this and also mm -hmm. how what Anwar himself stands for. I think that he has a credibility gap that yes. he has to deal with. And I think that the parties in Pakistan Harapan, while coming together to support Anwar, uh, I have quite have been bruised and there are some trust issues that have to be rebuilt. I think Anwar's prospects depend heavily on when there was there is an election and how he's able to build his base again. And I think it's particularly challenging because many of the young people don't connect to him the way that they did. And Malaysia's electorate is 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 a young electorate. 
Right. Uh, and so uh, it is, uh, you know, he is the leader of the 90s. And he's yes. been talking about scandals of the 90s, of which half the population, voting population, don't know what anything about or right. frankly care about. Right. Uh, and, and I think that this is, so I think he's going to have a very challenging battle ahead uh, in order to be able to, um, to move forward uh, and to, to rebuild the opposition. But one has to keep in mind, Anwar has done that before. <laughs> uh, and I think that um, the question, however, is that for many Malaysians is that they would like to move beyond that. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, Anwar will have a challenge to try to convince some of the supporters to come back and, and to engage these young electorates who are looking for different leaders. This is one of the interesting things about the February uh, Sheraton move or the coup yes, or whatever. Yes. It's not really a coup, they call it the Sheraton move. The, the Sheraton coup. Really yes. just a it, it's, a, it's a change of government. And, this right. is something, and we have the emergence of coalition politics in Malaysia that, that has become much more consolidated than before. But one of the interesting things about this is, is whether or not someone like Anwar can be able to rebuild his image again mm. uh, in these circumstances. I think it's going to be extremely challenging. Yes, no, he was incredibly eloquent when I heard him speaking last year in New York about um, reading Shakespeare in his prison cell. And I guess what has happened over the past year or so is just a further iteration of the sort of Shakespearean nature of Malaysian politics. And the high drama is really there, isn't it? And the rise and fall of great ambitions, reputations, ideas, people. And Malaysia's just a, been an extraordinary dramatic canvas for those of us who are fascinated by the study of politics to, to follow in recent years. Now, you've mentioned this election a couple of times. Clearly, there are people who are rooting like crazy for an election because they think that they could find themselves in a better situation as a result of one. Of course, we had an election only a couple of years ago. How likely is an, an imminent election in Malaysia? Well, it, it's possible that it could be this year. Uh, I think you know, uh, um, as early as maybe October, it, it depends. I mean, uh, the parliament is sitting um, in, in, from next week. We'll see uh, how Muiden goes through that process, but it could also go wait till after the budget, which is scheduled in November, which means it would be early next year. I think that the things that are, that are pushing for an early election are pretty, you know, normal. One is that the, the PN PAC, the Veritas mm. National, the coalition that Muiden leads, yep. Um, they would like to kind of have their own mandate. Muidin right. um, is a, uh, you know, he's a cancer survivor. Uh, yes. There's real questions about his health. Um, you know, it's having an election sooner rather than later, something that I think is, is clear. Um, there are a sense, you know, that if things economically will get worse with COVID-19, mm -hmm. so better to do it sooner rather than yep. later. Right. Uh, and of course, do it now when there are these divisions within the opposition. Right. And other. So there's this sense of, uh, that uh, these are some of the things that are pushing for an election having to be sooner. And of course, as we discussed earlier, what's happening with the with the pressures within UMNO and involving Najib's future in yes. particular, and not just Najib's future, but also the the, the, the current president of, of UMNO, Zahid Hamidi. He has over 80 charges uh, involving corruption right. against him. So I think the, the, these legal cases come in. So is there a possibility of having an election this year? Yes, I think it's, um, my sense is that they might try to push it to early next year and use the budget to try to kind of reinforce right. things. But Absolutely. you know, um, a lot of it will depend on how COVID-19 also yes. evolves. Um, you know, Malaysia's done a pretty good job in managing its numbers, right. 
right. but the economic economic impact um, has been pushed down the road and once the loan moratoriums that they put in place come due i think things are going to start to hit pretty hard so we'll have to see how it evolves yes it does sound from what you're saying as though the opposition is is in a singularly difficult position if they do manage to have an election over the next few months or so but one of the things we've learned about in this year so far is that things can change quite rapidly. That is true. Yes. What you <laughs> think you know. Yeah. Well, it's an, it, there is a new normal in Malaysia, and it was well beforehand. It's coalition right. politics, fragmentation, accepting of pluralistic voting and pluralistic yep. identities. We saw this weekend that they, the young people held a digital parliament. A lot of new voices are there. You know, we may see the emergence of a, a different party like we saw in Thailand. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are, I think there are lots of things that can shift. Uh, but what isn't yep. shifting is that there are, you know, the polarization still remains quite deep in this society. Right. Uh, and I think uh, the, and how to bridge that, I think, is going to be a big challenge. Well, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast presented here by Duncan McCargo from the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. I've been talking to Bridget Welsh about uh, politics in Malaysia, what's been going on and the prospects for the future. Thank you so much, Bridget, for those really fascinating explanations of things that have been puzzling me for quite a while. Well, most welcome, Duncan, and I'm sure we'll speak soon because things may change soon. Who knows? Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.